If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Last week, we did verses 1 through 10. This morning, we're going to start in verse 11 through 21. And so Galatians 2, 11 through 21. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you... Being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves uh, have also been found sinners, and is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. So this takes us into part three of our series of New Paths. And this series, New Paths, is covering... Galatians chapters 1 through 3. Then we're going to take a, a, a little break, and then we're going to come back into a new series, which will be Galatians 4, 5, and 6. So we're halfway through this series, and this passage in particular, if you've grown up around church, church people, and all that stuff, and then they all left. <laughs> Very subtle. <laughs> I don't know, but three of them are my children, but <laughs> we're voting the leader into membership later, so that's funny. <laughs> the, the stream is going, what just happened? <laughs> a whole row of teenagers took a walk. Anyway, so lost my train of thought there. That totally, totally caught me off guard. Anyway, we're good. This passage, if you've grown up around the church, if you've grown up around Christians, this passage sometimes gets a lot of press because it is, is, it's a conflict. You notice nobody ever uh, slows down to watch a good driver, right? You slow down for the crash. When we used to take the kids to the hockey games uh, for Word of Life Super Bowl, uh, you know, the kids always wanted to see the, the fight. They wanted to see the, because you, that's what's exciting is conflict. And so we tend to be drawn towards this passage because, oh, here's a smackdown between Paul and Peter, you know, apostle versus apostle, you know, and we kind of 
we enjoy it, and we may feel a sense of justification because if you like to be able to say, hey, I'm right and you're wrong, and kind of do a call out, well then here's proof that it's okay to do it because here's Paul calling out Peter, boom, 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 boom. And so that's why we've taken some time here by working our way through Galatians to read this in context and to notice that when we get to this passage, Paul has been talking about Peter for a chapter and a half, and he's been talking about the good relationship he has with Peter. We saw first he went out to Jerusalem, and he only saw two disciples, and one of them was Peter, and he stayed with Peter for 15 days. And then when he went back up to Jerusalem, we saw that last week, he goes back up to Jerusalem, and again, he has this relationship with Peter. And if you remember in verse 9, it says, as he has this relationship with Peter, that they gave him the right hand of fellowship. And the question all the way through here, the question was always, what does it mean to be part of the people of God? And for a long time, being part of the people of God meant being Jewish and being part of the Jewish nation. God had called out Abraham, said, I'm going to make you into my people, and then being my people, you will follow me in this way. And so there had been this construction of this is what it means to be my people. And that had been that way for a long time. So if you wanted to follow Yahweh, you did it this way. And now it was changing. And so now the question was, well, what does it mean to be God's people? So Paul had gone up to Jerusalem to say, well, I'm teaching that you don't need to embrace Jewishness, that you don't need to follow the clean versus unclean uh, dietary laws, that you don't need to be circumcised. But he'd gone up to Jerusalem to say, now is that right? And the leaders of the church, as we saw last week, and this was the sermon last week, said, no, that's good. In verse 9, it says, they recognized the grace that had been given to me. And he brought even a Gentile with him. He brought Titus with him into the heart of the Jewish church. And the Jewish church said, you know, you're fine. You don't need to be circumcised. And so he's got this good relationship with them, and they've given him grace, and they've given him the right hand of fellowship there in, in verse 9. And so then when you get to this, Suddenly, this is abrupt. This is a bump, a change, because then as he gets to here, he says, but then Cephas came to visit me at Antioch. And when, so this is Peter returning the favor. Paul's visited Peter twice. Peter comes to visit Paul, and he comes, and they're hanging out. And so the church is having probably daily meals together. Was, they didn't meet once a week. They met every day. And they would get together, and they're having barbecue. And so every day, they're getting together and having church fellowship because the life of the church wasn't centered primarily around attending a service. It was about just getting together. And they would preach the word and different things like that, but they also tended to eat. So they're kind of like Baptists in some way. We don't eat enough. And all God's people went, amen. We need more food. Uh, there we go. So then it says, prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Now, there's a lot here we have to unpack. So we need to, okay, who are these certain men? These certain men showed up, and what's the issue? And here we need to understand what's going on and what Peter is going on. So we need to look at a couple of verses, because there was a tradition that was at stake here. So don't lose Galatians, but we need to turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 10. 
Because in the book of Acts chapter 10, and this is chronologically before what happened in Antioch. So in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, we're going to hear Peter talking. And Peter is preaching a sermon here about the fact that he has met up with Cornelius, who is a Gentile, because God has sent Peter to the Gentiles and told Peter it's okay. And here's what Peter says as far as what this meant for him. Verse 28 of Acts 10. And he said to them, Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So there's the tradition. It has been unlawful for a Jew to associate or visit a foreigner. In other words, you don't go break bread with him. You don't go to his house and have a meal. This is the previous tradition, but Paul said, now you know that's been the rule, but God has told me that that's not something I need to follow now. Then in 11 verse 3, he's still taking flack for that. So I'll back up to 11 too. And Peter came up to Jerusalem. Those who were circumcised took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter answered and again shows that God had told him that that's not an issue. So this is the previous tradition. You don't hang out with Gentiles. People who are not, in the eyes of the Jews, converted, which back then meant converting to being Jews. So that's the issue, the previous tradition. Now these men, it says they came from James. James is the head of the Jerusalem church. He's the lead pastor. So the, the biggest way for you to think about that would be the idea of like, if you're Catholic, the Pope. This is the authority. This is the guy. And so these guys show up, and it says, verse 12 in Galatians 2, they came from James. But we need to, again, jump back to Acts. Acts gives us a lot of the history of what's going on here. It is the Acts of the church. And in Acts 15, we have a note from James himself. Acts 15, 24, here's a, here's a letter sent from James. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Here James talks about these men. These men have shown up. And in Galatians, Paul is still saying they came from James. But you, we find out later in the book of Acts that James says, uh, we didn't send them. They are not coming from us. But they showed up and they, you know, hey, we're here and we're, we're official. Which we all know people who are like that, that they want to come, they want to tell you what to do, and they want to tell you why you need to listen to them because they're official. And these guys said, hey, we're here from Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you know James? Yeah, well, that's why we're here. Here's what you need to do. And so it brought this up and it says now they weren't, so they weren't from James. And it says now what happened? Peter and the rest of the Jews became aloof. They withdrew and held themselves aloof, held themselves separate. This is a direct reversal of verse 9 that we covered last week. It says, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So when he went up to Jerusalem, bringing even a Greek with him, 
They said, welcome, you're one of us. And now they went, hey, we're not one of you. And so when these guys showed up, so suddenly, you know, the next day, you go to the barbecue, and where's everybody? Because half the fellowship is gone. Well, they're not, they, they didn't want to be seen with us. They didn't want, it's not appropriate for them to be here. What? Are we, are we doing, something, doing something wrong? And Peter, Peter of all people, Peter's like, oh, yeah, I'll, yeah I, I just I didn't think it was appropriate for me to hang out with you guys today. It's a breaking of fellowship, and Paul's like, now hang on, because this isn't, this is big, and, it, and it's so big, verse 13, that it caught everyone, including Barnabas. Now, Barnabas has been hanging out with Paul. Barnabas has been traveling with Paul. Barnabas knows better. Peter knows better. But Barnabas, of all people, you'd think his loyalty would be more to Paul than Peter. But Paul says, it got so, it was, the power was so strong, the hypocrisy was so great that even Barnabas stayed home. And so this is, this is not a difference between two apostles. This is not a personality conflict between Peter and Paul. In fact, the whole point is something much bigger than Peter. Because Paul has gone to great pains to show us that he had a good relationship with Peter and he affirms Peter's ministry. But what he says was, verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. They were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Here's the question. What is the good news? What does it mean for you to be right with God? Because suddenly it was, we're doing something wrong. Because why? We're eating unclean food, and we can't associate with you because it's not right with God. And Paul said, wait, what's the good news? And so then the rest of this, the rest of what we've read, we're going to go through it, but it's answering that issue of what does it mean to be right? What does it mean to be right with God? What does it mean to say that you are part of the fellowship of believers, that you are one of us. And what he says in verse 14, he says, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, and the reason this has to be public is because it's been done in public. And it's not public in, part, in front of the town, this is in front of all the fellowship. So it's not public in front of the public, it's public in front of the church. If you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? It comes right down to, why are you willing to live like them, but now you make them live like you? Verse 15, we're Jews by nature, and this is the argument. He's making kind of not fun of it, but he's calling out the false argument. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. In other words... We're the Jews, right? But then he negates it, verse 16. Nevertheless, or but, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, who think they're all good, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He says, listen, your salvation did not come through observing these traditions by doing the right thing. 
That's not how any of us got it. Even those of us who were Jews, we still had to have faith in Jesus. And then he makes that just blanket statement. We are justified by faith, not of works. The works justify nobody. Nothing. It doesn't help. Then he says, verse 17, while if we're seeking to be justified by Christ and by doing it this way suddenly makes us sinners, does that mean that Christ caused us to be sinners? That's verse 17. Because we're doing what God told us to do, and if that makes us a sinner, does that mean that God is causing us to sin? And of course, you see the answer, never! He's like, well, that's dumb. Which these guys would be like, well, yeah, that's dumb. Well, obviously, God's not leading us into sin. And then he makes a statement that to us probably goes, whew. verse 18, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Huh? What's Paul talking about? What is he rebuilding? He's referring to his old life of being a Pharisee. Because remember, Paul had been a rigorous rule follower. Paul said, when it came to the, the traditions, I was zealous for the traditions. Paul was going door to door and town to town, enforcing the traditions, dragging people out and throwing them in jail or having them killed for going against the traditions, which, again, to be fair, had come from God. God they, they did not cook up circumcision. God gave it to them. They didn't cook up clean versus unclean. God gave it to them. So it wasn't like they just made up some human traditions and then decided they were from God. God had given them these traditions. But they had then elevated them to the point of that these are, these are the traditions that make us right with God. And God hadn't said that. They had misunderstood. And now that's all that mattered to them. And he said, if I rebuild my life as a Pharisee, I prove I'm a sinner. In other words, taking the path that you guys are taking of going back to that way of life, that proves we're sinners, not that we're good. Because they were being told, going this way is what makes you good. And he goes, actually, going that way would make me a sinner. Verse 19, for, through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. And then this is wrong. Verse 25, there is no verse 25. That's a 20. But I couldn't read my own writing. When I typed it, I wasn't paying attention. So that's not 25, but 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He goes, listen, this is not about me being good. I'm dead. It's not my life. I live by faith, not of works and obedience to the law. My life now, as a believer, is not about being obedient to the law. It's not about doing works. It's by believing in Jesus. And he centers this entire argument on the cross. And this is one of the things that is probably one of the biggest ways that in our Western, modern Western Christianity, churchianity, we have, we have slipped away from the cross. And part of why we've slipped away from the cross is because we've over-spiritualized it, which sounds like a weird thing to do. But, I mean, we've got one here. It's beautiful. We've got one there, beautiful, because we have turned this into a religious artifact that is holy. So, you know, we use it to scare away vampires, and we wear, wear it as jewelry, because, oh, the cross, the cross is beautiful, the wonderful cross, and yet, not to these guys. 
in Jewish culture, the cross was terrible. Anyone who dies on a cross is cursed of God. And in Roman culture, it was anyone who dies on the cross is an enemy of the state. That's why they wouldn't crucify Roman citizens. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't get crucified because you're too good for it just by virtue of being a Roman citizen. So we lose touch of that because now we've turned it into an artifact that we reverence. So if you want to try to create a cultural approximation for what the cross would have meant to them, picture that the symbol on the front of the pulpit here and on the wall is not a cross but a hangman's noose. Because that's what, we don't like those. When we want to show that someone is in a bad way, we use a hangman's noose. It's a sign of disgrace. It's a sign of a bad way to kill someone. You're going to have a hanging. That's what the hangman's noose means in our culture. It means a, a bad way to die. Something you only do to people who really are bad. That's what the cross means. And Paul says, you know what makes me good? A hangman's noose. But for him, it's the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. And not just, so I don't live anymore. And then he ends with Jesus' crucifixion. He gave himself up for me. So he begins and ends his statement there in verse 20 with calling them back to the cross, which is a sign of disgraceful death. He goes, that's what my life is based on. I've been crucified. No, no, their culture would not have assigned nobility to that. He says, but this is what my faith is about. It's not about doing good things. It's not about being good and following the religious rules. It's about dying for the one who died for me. That's what it means. And then, as if that wasn't enough, verse 21, he really just finishes it off. I do not nullify. What does the word nullify mean? To make worthless to make zero. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He goes, listen, if, if what you're saying is true, if you can get brownie points from God for doing good, then you don't need Jesus. You just need to get your act together and shape up and fly right. You don't need Jesus, you need reform. He goes, if that's the way you're going to make God happy, then why did Jesus have to die? And he's using this conflict with Peter, who he has a good relationship with and who does know better, he's using it as a picture to try to wake the Galatians up. Because here's the truth in our discussion today, there is always a push to add requirements to the grace of God. There was in the Old Testament. There is in the New Testament right up till today. I call it faith plus. The, the plus is kind of a thing right now in our culture. Like I have Disney plus. It's like Disney and more. And if you have Apple TV, they have the little plus too. It's Apple plus. You know? So we, we do that a lot. You know, you have this and it's plus. And a lot of times our churchianity, Christianity has turned into faith plus. You need to believe in Jesus, and here's how I know that you're really saved. One of the things that's happening a lot today, I have a friend. I've, just, I don't, I've never met her in person. I've met her on Twitter, but I've interacted with her personally. She's a 
a liter she's a literary expert. She studies literature, English literature. She's a professor of English literature at a Southern Baptist seminary. So she teaches classics. But she's at a Southern Baptist seminary, which means she is conservative. Her theology would match ours at least because she's conservative. She has her early life, she was a major pro-life activist because she's conservative biblically and she believes in life. She has not signed up for some of the current political movements that are on the right, including supporting certain very popular politicians on the right. And she endures constant criticism of not being a true Christian. Why is she not a true Christian? Why is she one of those liberal Marxists? Because she denies the word of God as inspired? Nope, she fully affirms that. Because she doesn't believe that Jesus was God? Nope, she fully affirms that. She doesn't believe that you have to have faith in Jesus and that through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then faith in that, that you get saved? Nope, she believes that. In fact, you couldn't find anything that we hold dear theologically that she doesn't hold to. But she doesn't vote the right way in their opinion. So she's not one of us. She takes tremendous abuse. They call her names. It's awful. Why? Because she's not follows the traditions that we have set as American Christians. And if you don't follow the traditions, you're not one of us. Why would I want to have lunch with you? And that's going on in our culture, in our churches now, where you don't agree with me on the traditions. So I don't think you're right with God because you know that God loves you if you vote the right way. God loves you if you subscribe to our way of doing things. And Paul said, if you can earn brownie points by doing it right, you don't need Jesus. Righteousness does not come through obedience or observation of the law. And yet so often, what do we do? We feel, and it's, and it's powerful. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Is God... Is God mad at me? Have I fallen out of favor with God because I, I got something wrong? And think about how strong this is and why this story matters. Peter and Barnabas know better. This is Peter. We, we went back and looked in Acts where Peter had said, listen, God has made it clear that he is calling Gentiles to himself, not through the Jewish, the Jewish traditions. Peter knows he's received direct revelation from God that this is not the case. And it still gets him. And Barnabas knows. And it wasn't they stopped knowing, but what happened? The pressure to conform was so great that they fell. Because it's, it's hard when you start getting that pressure, right? And people say, so uh, what do you think? And suddenly you don't, you don't want to be rejected. And you don't want people to think bad of you. And you start going, well, maybe, maybe, I, maybe. Gee, 
You know, everybody who says they believe the same thing as me is telling me I'm, I'm wrong. And that's what happened to Peter. He knows better. But all these guys come back from home. He's based in Jerusalem. They come from Jerusalem. They go, Peter, who are you having lunch with? Oh, nobody. Nobody. No, I, I, no, no, I'm not doing that. And Paul says, what are you doing? Dude, you can't. You're not being straight about what it means to be pleasing to God anymore. You're not being straight about what the good news is, is that you've been declared righteous not by your ability to fulfill some requirements, but the fact that Jesus fulfilled the requirements for you. And this is what's tripping up the Galatians. The Galatians, and that's why he started Galatians with saying, why are you falling into this? Who's gotten to you that you think now to make God happy, you've got to do something? You're standing with God your righteousness, righteousness is just another word for being right. Your righteousness, your standing with God is based on Jesus' life, not yours. That's verse 20. And that is tough for us. Because we still start thinking that my standing with God goes up or down based on how good I'm being. I run into Christians all the time. They're like, well, you know, I've kind of gotten away from God. I've been doing what I ought to do. And they have this sense, this feeling that's powerful that if I bumped into God at the store right now, He'd kind of give me that look. I don't think He's too happy with me right now. Because I'm not pleasing him and I have to do it right to be right and Paul said well if that's the strategy you're following then you don't need Jesus because the whole point of Jesus was that you can't do it right and that's what he says in verse 20 it's not my life anymore and the life I now live I live by faith in him not by working for him but by faith in Him. But this makes us uncomfortable because, well, if, I, if it doesn't matter what I do, then can I do whatever I want to do? And man, the minute, you know, a pastor like me, I start saying, hey, you know, even if you're doing the wrong thing, it doesn't affect your standing. You're like, oh, well, then I can do the wrong thing. Oh, I can't let that. Okay, so I forget I said that because I need to keep you under control because I don't want you going out doing bad things, so I can't tell you the good news. That doesn't matter what you do. Find that out, you might do bad things. But your standing does not rely on your ability to please God. Either it does or it doesn't, and it doesn't. And that's what he says here. Verse 21, I do not nullify the... What does he say he doesn't nullify? I do not nullify the grace of God. Grace can only be given to people who don't deserve it right? The definition of grace is being given something you don't deserve. If you deserve it, it's not grace. It's earnings. It's reward. So if you can earn it, you cannot receive grace because grace is based on your inability to earn it. And Paul says, I do not nullify, I do not make grace worthless because if righteousness comes through the law, then Jesus was wasting his time. Our standing, your standing, every day, 
rests on Jesus' life, not yours. Now again, that raises all kinds of questions. So does it matter what we do? Yes, it does. But not based on your standing with God. We got two more weeks in this series to get, we're going to do chapter three. So I'm just going to give you the preview of chapter three, which we're going to take two weeks because there's a lot in there. But chapter three, Paul's going to continue this idea to show you faith is superior to the law. And he's going to use a really good example if you're Jewish. None of us are, but we're going to listen to him because we can apply it. And then we're going to take a break, and I'm going to take a break. And then we're going to come back and do the second half of Galatians. And in the second half of Galatians, he's going to, Paul's going to then help us understand, well then, well, then how do I live? If I'm not living to please God and make sure I keep in good standing with him, then why does it matter what I do? Because it does then how do I understand sin in my life? Because you have, and you need to deal with sin in your life. But how do we deal with it if we don't deal with it in terms of God happy versus God mad? Well, we're going to do that. So you have to, second half of, Mar, second half of uh, February and the month of March, tune in, and we'll look at Paul. You can also just read Galatians, it's right there. But we're going to go through that together and tease that out of what it means in the second half of the book and what it means to live. But what is the, where do we start? We don't start with every day. This is how you don't start. You don't start with, I hope I make God proud today. I hope I keep God happy today. I hope that I'm doing things that makes him happy. You can't start there. And if you're messing up, if you're doing things you shouldn't do, which you shouldn't do them, they're called sin for a reason, you don't start with, I think God's mad at me. Because Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation if you're in Christ. Because your standing with him does not, can not depend on you. It depends on what Jesus has done. And that's why we put crosses everywhere. The goal should be to remind us of what he did, not what we do. And that everything we have is based on his work, not ours. Because that's, and that's the good news. And we take that out to a world that's trying to, what, I mean, take any debate right now going on, whether it's in our country or across the world, whether it's political or scientific, what is the primary debate? What is good? And who's good? And who's right? And our answer is, hey, we got good news. God's right, we're wrong, and he loves you. The good news is you're wrong, and God loves you. He loved the world so much. I lo the, the kids just blew me away. Such awesome answers. How much does God love you? Infinite. Can you add to that? No. <laughs> you can't add to infinite. You're the holiest Christian ever lived. God can't love you more. And if you're the worst Christian ever lived, he can't love you less. The old song is, my only hope. I lost it right there. It, was, it started playing in my head. Help me out here. I just blanked. On Jesus' blood and righteousness. What's the line before that? My hope is built. Thank you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
The only hope I have is his work, not mine. Your standing with God. What makes you right today? Not how good you've been, but how good he's been. Let's pray. Father, we underestimate how much you love us. We want to feel a sense of, of earning. We want to feel a sense of deserving. We want to feel like somehow we've made you proud. And so we want to try to earn your love. Lord, we do, you have promised that if we are faithful, you'll reward us. But even that is coming out of grace because we can only even serve you because of your work, not ours. And even when we serve you, it's your work, not ours. And even when good things happen, it's your work, not ours. And that we are not producing good on our own. And we're not better at producing good than someone else. And we're not more holy than someone else. And we're not going to walk up to someone and have a sense of superiority because all we know is that we are hopeless and helpless without you. And all we have is grace. So, Lord, I pray that as we are the people of you and as we are the representatives of you in this culture, that we will never hold that with a, a sense of superiority as if we'd earned anything. But that we will be constantly aware and communicate that everything we have is because of grace through faith that we believe you, that we trust you. And it's not our life anymore, it's yours. And that you died because we aren't good at this. And while we were still sinners, you died for the ungodly, us. May we build our Christian lives not around trying to please you, but secure in the knowledge that we have been declared righteous because of your shed blood on the cross. May we put aside our efforts to be good enough for you to let us into heaven, knowing that instead you have come to us while we were helpless and offered to declare us righteous based solely on your work and not on ours at all. Father, that you would love us that much to do that much for us boggles our mind that as rebellious and unfaithful as we continue to be, that you would just pour grace upon grace. Oh, what good news. So Lord, may that be who we are as individuals, and may that be who we are as a church body, as the fellowship of believers, a fellowship that comes together not because we're such good people, but because we are joint recipients of your grace. And may we not pull apart from each other based on our traditions and standards of righteousness instead of our faith in you. We thank you and praise you, Father, for your patience with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.